These bills are not about left versus right or about moderate versus progressive or anything that pits one American against another. These bills are about competitiveness versus complacency. They're about expanding opportunity, not having opportunity denied. President Biden hits the road to sell his economic agenda as Democrats in Congress scramble to come up with a compromise. The questions, what will the final package look like and what will be left out? Plus, the House is set to vote today on a contempt charge against Steve Bannon. But with Republican leadership urging members to vote no, the question is, will we see any GOP lawmakers defy Kevin McCarthy? And? Pledge Friday. Yes, what's going on? Um, I'll you something. Police in New Zealand respond to a four-year-old boy's emergency call, inviting officers over to see his toys. The question is, who could resist that adorable plea? It's way too early for this. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early, the show that still has a pretty good collection of He-Man action figures. I'm Jonathan Lemire. On this Thursday, October 21st, we'll start with the news. House lawmakers will vote today on whether to hold former Trump advisor Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress after he ignored a subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. The vote is expected to pass, but there's still uncertainty about whether the Justice Department will actually prosecute Bannon. During a House Rules Committee hearing yesterday, the vice chair of the Select Committee, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, a Republican, once again pressed her fellow members of the GOP to support the contempt vote. Let me address my Republican colleagues specifically. I've heard from a number of my colleagues in the last several days who say they, quote, just don't want this target on their back. They're just trying to keep their heads down. They don't want to anger Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, who has been especially active in attempting to block the investigation of events of January 6th, despite the fact that he clearly called for such a commission the week after the attack. I ask each one of you to step back from the brink. I urge you to do what you know is right. Meanwhile, House Republican leaders are advising members to vote no on the contempt charge against Bannon. Minority leader Kevin McCarthy and Republican whip Steve Scalise were both asked about it yesterday. Take a listen. Bannon's contempt vote? Yes. Okay, I, I don't view that committee as a real committee since Pelosi's never let us um, participate. I think you're seeing uh, most members get tired of the witch hunts and the games. Let's focus on policies that affect everyday families right now. Joining us now, congressional reporter for Politico, Nicholas Wu. And Nicholas, good morning. Good to see you. We should note there, Kevin McCarthy says that Pelosi never let us participate, meaning Republicans. There are Republicans on the panel. And of course, it was the Republicans in the Senate who blocked the bipartisan commission. So now that we've established that, uh, it certainly does seem that most House Republicans are expected to vote against the contempt measure. But tell us, you've been following this closely. What does your reporting say? How do you think this plays out? Well, based on my reporting, it looks like very few Republicans are going to support this uh, resolution holding Steve Bannon in contempt when it comes to the House floor. I mean, as you mentioned, you know, House leadership uh, on the Republican side is recommending that they vote against it when it's on the floor later, saying you know, that it's uh, an illegitimate committee and, and the like. But uh, it, it is, of course, worth remembering that it was um, House Republican leadership 
who also helped bat down the uh, bipartisan committee from their side, saying that um, you know, despite this being a deal that was brokered by um, House and Democratic uh, uh, committee leaders, um, House Republican leadership still uh, told members to vote against it in the end. And so this brings us to where we are now, where some of the only Republican votes that are expected for this uh, resolution holding Bannon in contempt are going to be Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, the only Republicans sitting on the select committee. Nicholas, before we move on to the Biden agenda on this, do we have any further sense as to whether actual charges could be brought against Bannon, assuming the vote goes through? That really remains to be seen. I mean, President Biden certainly made some waves uh, last weekend when he suggested that people who defied subpoenas could be prosecuted by the Department of Justice. Um, but I think we'll get some greater insight from that today when Attorney General Merrick Garland actually testifies before the House Judiciary Committee um, for a, a somewhat routine hearing on oversight on the Department of Justice. Um, he will very likely be asked about how he's going to try to handle some of these cases and you know, that he might actually uh, you know, give some greater insight into how this could all play out. Nicholas, it's certainly a busy time right now over there on Capitol Hill. You're also following, of course, all the negotiations within the Democratic Party with that bipartisan infrastructure deal and the attempt to get an agreement on the larger reconciliation package. Seems like there's been a sense of optimism the last couple of days, uh, but a lot of stuff has to get sorted out. Tell us, where do things stand? Well, I think one of the pivotal moments this week was the Tuesday meetings that groups of House Democrats and uh, some senators held with President Biden and groups of moderates and progressives. And you know, in, in these meetings, according to our sources in the room, he delivered what were basically these, these fairly blunt assessments of what had to go and what um, could stay necessarily in their social spending package. And, and you know, this is certainly leading to a bit of heartburn among Democrats about uh, things they have to let go, big, big programs that they had wanted to have in there, like a longer extension of the child tax credit or free community college. Emerging from all this and after meetings that the Democrats held yesterday, it really does seem that there's this sense of optimism that they could get something together. Now, whether or not that's going to happen, you know, there, there's a lot of parts that have to go right for that to be. And, you know, we got to remember just a few weeks ago, um, Democratic leaders said that they would also be passing the infrastructure bill. So uh, this being Capitol Hill, uh, deadlines are very much an artificial construct. And, and so, um, House Democratic leadership says that they want a deal uh, pretty soon, but um, you know whether or not that happens, we'll see. Deadlines are very much an artificial construct. Well said, Nicholas Wu of Politico. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you again soon. The White House has unveiled its plan to vaccinate nearly 30 million children, ages 5 to 11. This comes as the FDA authorizes Moderna and Johnson & Johnson boosters, significantly widening the nation's COVID-19 vaccination campaign. NBC News national correspondent Miguel Amelgar has the very latest. Authorized by the FDA, booster shots for adults fully vaccinated with Moderna and Johnson & Johnson could be days away. The stage now set for the CDC's review after the FDA also approved mixing and matching boosters. Done! It comes as the White House unveils its massive plan to begin vaccinating 28 million children between the ages of 5 and 11 who could qualify for their first shots of Pfizer's vaccine as soon as early November. The logistical rollout using trusted sites like schools and community centers to ensure families have easy access to the free vaccine. Why is vaccinating this age group so important? 
We do a lot of vaccinations for kids to keep them safe. Getting them vaccinated will help bring infection numbers down across the community for everybody. Pfizer's vaccine, the same formula used for adults, just a smaller dose. The White House saying they'll prepackage the child-sized vials. More than 25,000 doctor's offices, 100-plus hospitals, and tens of thousands of pharmacies nationwide will be ready for quick distribution. One, two, three... Seven-year-old Lydia and her five-year-old sister, Bridget, participated in the vaccine trial. Was there any hesitation in getting your children involved in the trial? None whatsoever. I mean, Megan and I had both already been vaccinated, uh, and we felt extremely comfortable just personally. I think we also want to teach them that science is important and also giving back and kind of stepping up. We were sort of scared if we got COVID, and now... It will probably protect us from COVID. But amid protests, a new Kaiser study says most parents won't immediately get their kids vaccinated. 32% will wait and see, and 24% say they definitely will not. We're not anti-vax. That's not what we're saying. We're saying this is a, a new science, quote-unquote, and, and, and it's, it, it needs to be proven. All done! The massive rollout to vaccinate children and the growing fight against it. Good news indeed on kids' vaccines and boosters. I'm Team Moderna myself. Still ahead, a, cream, a, a grim discovery in the manhunt for Brian Laundrie. He's been named as a person of interest in the death of his fiancée, Gabby Petito. But now, after weeks of searching, police have found human remains. Plus, an attack hits a U.S. base in Syria. What military leaders are saying about that this morning. Those stories and a check on the weather when we come right back before the sun rises in Washington, D.C. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. U.S. military leaders are calling an attack on a base in southern Syria, quote, deliberate and coordinated. The attack happened yesterday at a base near the border with Jordan and Iraq, where about 200 Americans are stationed. Military officials say the incident appeared to include at least one drone strike and a small number of rockets. The U.S. and coalition troops deployed there are tasked with training Syrian fighters to counter the Islamic State. Pentagon officials say no American troops were injured or killed. It is not yet clear who carried out the attack. New discoveries as the search for Gabby Petito's fiance, Brian Laundrie, continues. The FBI has revealed that human remains were found in the same area as some of Laundrie's personal belongings. NBC News correspondent Sam Brock has the latest. Police and FBI agents have spent weeks combing this Florida natural reserve searching for Brian Laundrie, his last reported location. There's a tent, partial human remains, and long-awaited signs of laundry. Investigators found what appears to be human remains, along with personal items, such as a backpack 
and notebook belonging to Brian Laundry. These items were found in an area that up until recently have been underwater. The 23-year-old is wanted for questioning in the disappearance of his fiance Gabby Petito and debit card fraud charges. He's been on the run for nearly a month. After his parents say he went hiking in that reserve in September and never returned. You can't keep chocolate in Utah. Laundrie and Petito were on a cross-country road trip when Laundrie returned to Florida without her in early September. Petito was later discovered dead in a Wyoming national forest with an autopsy revealing she was strangled. The Laundrie family attorney said in a statement his parents went to the park this morning to search for Brian, writing after a brief search off a trail that Brian frequented, some articles belonging to Brian were found. Our evidence response team is on scene using all available forensic resources to process the area. The last confirmed sighting of Petito was August 27th, two weeks after the Moab police stopped Petito and laundry after bystanders reported domestic violence. You want to tell me about those scratches on your face? No charges were filed. Petito's tragic disappearance and death spawning national attention in a race to find laundry, ending with more questions than answers. Still ahead. The Braves are one step closer to the World Series, while my Boston Red Sox are on the blink of elimination. Sports is next. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. No balls, two strikes. And that ball's hit well in the left field. Turning and running is Taylor at the track, the wall. She's gone. Eddie Rosario with a home run. Opposite field smash, and the Braves strike first. The season when he was logging multiple innings. That ball's high and deep in the left center field. Duvall gives it a ride, and this one's going to fly. Adam Duvall with a home run. The Braves go back to back. Two to nothing. That's the Braves taking an early lead over the Dodgers yesterday with back-to-back home runs in the second inning. Two of the four hit by Atlanta in the game, and the first of a pair clubbed by Eddie Rosario, who drove in four runs and scored three, finishing just a double short of the cycle. Atlanta, after coming back after a heartbreaker in game three, they win nine to two, and they take a commanding three to one lead against the heavily favored Dodgers in the best of seven National League Championship Series. The Braves can punch their ticket to the World Series, their first since 1999, with a win in tonight's game five in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, the Red Sox. 
They're now on the brink of elimination after last night's 9-1 loss to the Astros in Game 5 of the ALCS. Houston starter Framber Valdez was excellent. He had a perfect game going into the fifth, where he allowed two runners on base before escaping the jam with the Astros' one-run lead intact. That double play for Hunter Renfro was the biggest moment of the game. The lefty would take a two-hit shutout into the seventh and become the first pitcher this postseason to complete eight innings on the mound. He also received offensive support during the Astros' five-run sixth inning, sparked by an error by Boston first baseman Kyle Schwarber. Red Sox starter Chris Sale was good, but the team's once-hot bats have gone cold, and Boston has been outscored 18-3 over the last two games. That, my friends, is not going to get it done. Taking a 3-2 lead in the series, Houston will look to finish off the Red Sox at home in Game 6 tomorrow night. The Broncos and Browns, meanwhile, will kick off Week 7 of the NFL regular season tonight in Cleveland. But Baker Mayfield will not be under center for the Browns on the short week after he played with the past four games with a torn labrum in his left shoulder. Backup quarterback Case Keenum will start in his place. Turning now to the NBA, an opening night at Madison Square Garden, where the New York Knicks outlasted uh, a career-high 46 points scored by the Celtics' Jalen Brown, needing two overtime periods to defeat Boston, 138-134. to It caps a bad night for New England sports. The Bruins also fell to the Flyers. Six to three. That's why I'm so grumpy today. In New Orleans, the Philadelphia 76ers appeared unfazed by the absence of Ben Simmons and unaffected by the drama surrounding the disgruntled all-star guard. They defeated the Pelicans 117 to 97 last night. In Memphis, the Grizzlies' John Morant adds a couple clips to his highlight reel, closing the first half with his chase down block on the Cavaliers' seven-foot-tall power forward before making an early entry for dunk of the year. Mobley, oh, smothered by Jaron. Loose ball picked up by the Grizzlies. Melton. Lob. That was ridiculous. The alley-oop is good for two of Morant's game-high 37 points, the most memorable two for sure. And the Grizzlies beat the Cavaliers 132-121. to And in Toronto, rapper Drake does his part to help out his hometown rappers from the sidelines. He engaged in Washington's, with Washington's Montrez Harrell in some trash talk that earned Harrell a technical foul. But it's not enough to help Toronto pass the Wizards. Washington wins 98-83. to Time now for the weather. And let's go to meteorologist Bill Karens for the forecast. How's it looking out there, Bill? Uh, we had a huge storm coming into the west. Uh, that's going to be the big story. Uh, we're going to fill up a little bit some of those reservoirs. We're going to put out some of the fires, so that's great news. And the weather in the east is going to stay pretty tranquil and warm. So this storm in the west is spinning off the northwest coast. Today it's going to bring some very heavy rains into areas of northern California and also into areas of the coastal areas of Oregon and Washington State. And these totals with this storm and then another big one over the weekend are going to be impressive. And at the highest of elevations, we're going to get our first significant snow. So some of those ski areas like Mammoth Lakes, uh, you know, there are probably a lot of them aren't opening yet, but they're going to start building up those bases, especially at the peaks. We could get up to a foot and a half of snow out of this. And the rainfall totals, they could be high enough that some of those fires that we had, like the Dixie Fire, those burn scar areas are going to be very vulnerable to some flooding. So uh, don't be surprised you see some pictures of that uh, when we return on Monday morning. So today's forecast, look how warm it is in the east. D.C. at 78 today. Uh, yesterday was 80 with a record high at New Newark and LaGuardia airports today around 75 degrees. It will be cooler with a little bit of rain around Minneapolis and possibly around Chicago. So let's talk about that weekend forecast starting with Friday. 
There is that big rainstorm still affecting the northwest. Notice pretty much everywhere east of the Rockies is dry and sunny and looking at pretty decent weather. Just a few showers northern Maine. And we'll have a couple hit and miss showers in areas of south Florida, including Miami. And Saturday's forecast will be cooler and breezy in the northeast, but still dry. It looks pretty warm and sunny in the middle of the country. Then a new storm will move into the west. And then we'll see some rain moving into the Midwest on Sunday. So keep that in mind for any Sunday plans from Kansas City to St. Louis all the way through Illinois and Ohio, and the clouds will move into the northeast on Sunday. So uh, I think Saturday is your choice day for the northeast and in the uh, Great Lakes and Ohio Valley. So, uh, you know, on Saturday, uh, you know, depending on how things go in Houston, uh, you may have some extra time on your hands. Ah, oh, Bill Karens, you had to go there, but I don't blame you. I, uh, yeah, it's true. I may be uh, <laughs> taking advantage of that cool autumn weather uh, this weekend in the Northeast if uh, things go poorly tomorrow night. We appreciate it, Bill. We'll see you soon. Still ahead, once again, Senate Republicans block legislation to bolster voting rights. We'll talk about where that fight stands on Capitol Hill. But before we go to break, we want to know, why are you awake? Email your reasons to waytooearly at msnbc.com or tweet me at John Lemire. Use the hashtag waytooearly and we'll read our favorite answers later in the show. Um. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's just before 5.30 on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm Jonathan Lemire. For the second time this year, Senate Republicans prevented the Freedom to Vote Act from moving forward after Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said his party would oppose it. The bill would allow automatic and same-day voter registration and no-excuse mail voting. It would also make Election Day a holiday. The bill fell short of the 60 votes needed to advance. All Democrats backed the measure, but Majority Leader Chuck Schumer later voted no in order to request another vote down the line. A little bit of Senate procedure. After yesterday's vote, Schumer spoke from the Senate floor. Every single Republican senator just blocked this chamber from having a debate, simply a debate, on protecting Americans' right to vote in free and fair elections. A little over a year ago, our country held the safest, most accessible, most on-the-level elections in modern history. Republican obstruction is not a cause for throwing in the towel. As soon as next week, I'm prepared to bring the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act here to the floor. What we saw from Republicans today is not how the Senate is supposed to work. President Biden later wrote in a statement, the Senate, quote, needs to act to protect the sacred constitutional right to vote, which is under assault, he says, by proponents of Donald Trump's big lie. But he did not express support for changing the longstanding filibuster rule, which requires 60 votes for most legislation to proceed in the Senate. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is calling for a bipartisan commission on federal election reform following last year's presidential election. Speaking to Axios, the state's top election official said that the country needs another examination of election practices, like the one in 2005 that was co-chaired by former President Jimmy Carter and Secretary of State James Baker, Democrat-Republican. Raffensperger was forced into the spotlight last January after former President Trump asked him to find votes to overturn the election results in his home state of Georgia. Joining us now on this, Axios political editor, Glenn Johnson. Glenn, good morning. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, let's start there with uh, Axios as your reporting. Uh, how did Raffensperger, how does this work? How does he explain the need for a voting commission after what was 
by all accounts and by research, the most secure election in U.S. history. I think this is something of a safe harbor for him. His state was at ground zero for some of the election dispute uh, last November. Uh, he's been pilloried by Donald Trump and some of the Republican Party over his handling of that election. Uh, Democrats have offered proposals, ways to try and uh, improve the voting process. And so by calling for an independent commission, that seems to be the safe harbor that every politician falls back to when they can't really find a way out of a problem, but they want to try and show that they're committed to trying to find some solution. Uh, ironically, we're at the 20th anniversary of something that seem to have clarified and called into question the integrity of the voting process, the disputed election in Florida in the George Bush uh, Al Gore election. And yet here we are 20 years later, we've had commissions, the one you mentioned, chaired by Jimmy Carter and James Baker in 2005, and on and on, and still no progress really in either securing or sort of uh, clarifying the way to vote uh, with integrity in this country. Are there similar are there commissions or measures uh, under consideration in some of the other states uh, where there's been scrutiny over the election results, most of it brought uh, without evidence by Republicans? I mean, in the ones that are controlled by Republicans, you actually see the opposite. You see them moving ahead with laws that would make it somewhat harder to vote or raise a higher bar for who can vote. Uh, we obviously saw what happened down in Georgia, uh, things like you know, restricting, providing uh, uh, sustenance to people waiting in line. Uh, you've seen votes in other state legislatures to have the election process removed from uh, a secretary of state and given to the legislator in certain legislature in certain cases. And so uh, in states where uh, there has been democratic control of legislatures, you've seen talk about ways to actually make voting easier, but uh, no sort of national consensus around what really needs to be done. So moving to Washington, uh, there has been obviously been increased pressure, uh, especially in recent weeks, from Democrats, from party activists, saying you need to do more to protect voting rights on the federal level. Uh, we saw yesterday, of course, that vote never came to be. There's not even a debate in the Senate about that voting rights legislation. You know, that I'm sure this, it'll be the same on the John Lewis Act when that comes. It's all about the filibuster and whether there can be any sort of carve out or change to it. Uh, what are you hearing, Glenn? What's the, your reporting, Axios is reporting on whether there's any momentum at all among Democrats to change this, the, the filibuster, to potentially enact some sort of voting rights legislation? I think all the way across the board, what you've seen is this just calcification of the political system whether we're talking infrastructure, whether we're talking voting rights, uh, whether we're talking any other major legislation coming out of the Congress, we really have divided into two pretty hard and fast uh, sets of people here. Uh, the Republicans have shown incredible strength sticking together, uh, maintaining this 50 vote block and forcing the Democrats to try and climb to 60 votes if they want to pass major legislation. Now, even in some areas, uh, where they've worked together, um, you know, ultimately passing a bill has has been uh, made harder because the Republican Party has stuck together. Uh, bit by bit, you've seen the Democrats talk about changing the filibuster uh, provision, and every time that they get close, you see the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell pull back and offer them a third way that 
resolves the issue for the moment, but doesn't go to that nuclear option of getting rid of the filibuster. So, uh, you know, it's just it's almost an intractable position between the two parties right now. We have the Republicans sticking very firm and the Democrats not really able to muster the votes to get that change they say they need to in the filibuster process. Glenn Johnson of Axios, we really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll see you again. Still ahead, the totally different emergency called in by a four-year-old in New Zealand. Way too early. He's back in a minute. Time now for something totally different. After a tough couple of years, wouldn't it be nice to forget it all and sail around the world? Well, now you can do just that. Royal Caribbean has announced its ultimate world cruise aboard its ship Serenade of the Seas. Hmm. The round trip voyage will span nine months, departing from Miami. The 274 night cruise, 274 night cruise, will visit all seven continents, stopping at more than 150 destinations across 65 countries. The price tag? A cool $61,000 a person plus tax. Related, Willie Geist just called in sick. Vice President Kamala Harris celebrated her 57th birthday yesterday and received a sweet surprise from the Commander-in-Chief. Take a look. President Biden swung by the vice president's office to give her flowers from the first lady and a framed photograph of the two of them, which Harris called her favorite. And finally, this adorable emergency call made by a four-year-old in New Zealand is warming hearts around the world. This is Therese. Where is the emergency? Hi. Hello. Place lady. Yes, what's going on? Um, I'll you something. You can tell me something. I got some toys for you. You got some toys for me? Yep. Come over and see them. The way he said police lady is really good. Following the call, a policeman was indeed dispatched to surprise the child and check out his toy collection. There they are. The officer confirmed that the toys were indeed cool and shared that he also had an educational chat with the boy about when to make emergency calls in the future. Still ahead, Congressman Sean Kasten joins us as Democrats work to cut down the price tag of the president's Build Back Better plan. And as we go to break, a look at this date in history. 61 years ago, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon debated for the fourth and final time before the presidential election, concluding the first set of televised campaign debates with an hour-long discussion focusing on foreign affairs. By continuing the dignity, the decency that has characterized us, and it's that that keeps the prestige of America up, not running down America the way Senator Kennedy's been running her down. Comment, Senator Kennedy? I really don't need uh, Mr. Nixon to tell me about what my responsibilities are as a citizen. Amid pushback from a key Democrat over raising the corporate tax rate to pay for the social spending plan, the Biden administration is reportedly looking into alternate methods to foot the bill. A source tells NBC News that senior White House officials briefed top Democrats on the possible change of plans yesterday. This comes after Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona came out against the initial proposal to increase the corporate tax rate to 28 percent. The Biden administration is now reportedly considering a range of other options, including a tax on billionaires' assets, a new minimum tax on corporations, an overhaul of international tax provisions, and beefing up tax enforcement. In a statement from the White House last night, a spokesman reiterated the, quote, 
reiterate that, quote, the price tag for this legislation is zero. Meanwhile, the president returned to his roots to continue promoting his Build Back Better plan. Biden was in his hometown of Scranton, Pennsylvania, laying out his hopes for the infrastructure bill. This has been declared dead on arrival from the moment I introduced it. But I think we're going to surprise them because I think people are beginning to figure out what's at stake. What are we doing? This is the United States of America, damn it. What are we doing? We haven't passed a major infrastructure bill for decades in this country. Last four years, you hear every month is, you know, infrastructure month. Didn't do a single damn thing. Nothing. I mean, nothing for four years. We can't afford to sit while other countries pass us by. We're going to breathe new life into the economy and our workforce. You may have heard that Joe Biden is indeed from Scranton. That speech comes as Democrats work to cut down the price tag of the plan without sacrificing their individual top priorities. The White House has already removed its most ambitious climate change proposal from the bill after Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia objected to the clean electricity plan. Joining us now to talk about that, member of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, Democratic Congressman Sean Cast of Illinois. Congressman, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's been indeed reported that President Biden's clean electricity program has been cut from the larger social spending bill. Um, talk to us about how you feel about that and the measures that are being talked about as a replacement. Do they do enough to compensate for the removal? Um, it, it is tragic. It makes me angry that we're dipl- displacing this. That package, the package we passed out of the House, would reduce U.S. CO2 emissions by 45 percent by 2030, which is massive, transformative and not enough. And what we're finding now is that the majority of the United States Senate thinks that it's it's not hot enough on this planet right now. And so we're trying to replace it. There are provisions that we're trying to bring back in. Um, it's uh, things are in flux right now, but um, but we're doing everything we can. And, you know, the president had challenged uh, individual lawmakers in recent days about saying that you need we need to have something substantial here. I'm going to go to this climate conference in Scotland in a couple of weeks. And I need to be able to have America's reestablish America's moral leadership on on climate change. How important is that, do you think, from the on the global stage for the president to be able to do that? And would these replacement measures, would that allow him to do so? Honestly? Well, it's, it's critical for a number of reasons. You know, we're aware that the whole West was on fire this summer. You know, two-thirds of Americans experienced extreme weather. The fires we had are smaller than the fires in Australia. The fires in Australia were smaller than the fires of Siberia. The rest of the world understands this. And what they're looking for is they admire United States democracy. They admire our economic clout. They are frankly underwhelmed that for 40 years since Kyoto, we haven't acted on climate. And so our lips are great, but our feet aren't moving. So what we need to do before COP is to make sure that we show up and say, we may have made mistakes in the past, but we are now prepared to lead. Because if we don't, we are not going to be very happy with the countries that have significant economic clout, but don't share our values and are eager to lead on that global stage. So we just mentioned the climate provisions that Senator Manchin wants out. We just mentioned the tax changes that Senator Sinema wants out. And we just heard from President Biden saying that, look, he's looking to get this deal done. You voiced just now some real displeasure uh, with how things stand, at least with the climate change part of it. Are you frustrated? How frustrated are you with these two Democratic senators and perhaps even the Democratic president? Well, look, it's important to understand that all it takes is a majority. The problem as we sit here is not one senator. The problem is 52 senators who believe that pharmaceutical costs are too 
too low, apparently, that there, that there isn't enough wealth inequality in our world, that the, that the climate isn't heating up. That's a problem. I'll take any, any senator who's actually willing to stand up and do that. Now, to be fair, if we get everything done, we still have a very transformative bill. We're doing some fantastic things in here to lower, um, you know, to provide seniors with access to, to dental and vision care to expand access to childcare. There's still some really good things in there, but the question is, in this moment, are we going to do what's scientifically necessary, or are we gonna fall back on what's politically possible? And the planet doesn't really care about the politics of a, a few senators. And we just have to keep that in mind as we push forward. All right, Congressman Sean Kasson, we appreciate you being here today. Please come back soon. Earlier in the show, we asked that immortal question. Why are you awake? Becca writes, today, it's not too early. Awake because we made it to Florida for our trip to Disney. All right, have fun, be safe. Craig is up early because he has a new work shift that starts at 5 a.m. Hey, Craig, me too. And Anne shares this photo. The puppy and I are up to watch way too early. I also received a note, someone asking why I'm not wearing a red tie, perhaps in support of the Red Sox. Well, we're off today. So my tie gets a day off too. We'll be back at it tomorrow. I'm very worried. Up next, what to expect ahead of today's House vote to hold Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress. And coming up on Morning Joe, Chair of the House Progressive Caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal will join the conversation. Plus, we'll hear from the U.S. Surgeon General ahead of a potential decision by the FDA today about mixing and matching COVID vaccine boosters. Morning Joe, just a few short minutes away. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.